Probably no three words are better known and more misunderstood and more misused than the command that's on the screen right now. Jesus' command, do not judge. There is a righteous judge, and it's not me, it's not any of the elders, and it's not any of you. The great Russian novelist Leo Tolstoy said that when Jesus gave this command, he said, Christ totally forbids the human institution of any law court. He had clashed with the, Roman, uh, with the Russian Orthodox hierarchy, and he clashed with government authorities. And Tolstoy concluded that whenever flawed humans tried to judge, no matter what the setting, the result was, was not good. The result was flawed. Now, do not judge is a favorite statement of people who say Christians are intolerant. And for the record, I quite often agree when you hear those charges in the press. Christians can be very intolerant. They can be very belligerent. They can, they can uh, be heartless at times. And that really is why I wanted to preach this message. I'm going to push on that. I don't agree that Jesus commanded his followers to simply turn a blind eye toward the choices of, of other people. I don't agree that no person has the right to say what is right and what is wrong for anybody else. I don't agree that everybody gets to decide right and wrong for themselves. You have to have some kind of a standard in a civilized society. Very scary thought. If you take, everybody gets to do whatever they think is right or wrong. Everybody gets to decide. If you take that out to its logical conclusion, it's a very scary place to live. But here's what Jesus actually said. Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. Do not judge, or you too will be judged. What exactly did Jesus mean by that? Now, the Greek word for judge is no help at all. Okay? Uh, I, I always think of my Greek professor. I took four years of Greek, Dr. Ed Goodrick. He, he would frequently remind us that knowing biblical languages, Greek and Hebrew, was not magic. And he said, generally, he said, you're not going to believe this, but generally, what it says in your English translation, guess what? That's what it says in Greek or Hebrew. That's the reason, he says, they call it a good translation. In fact, if you, take, uh, if you take four English translations and you read them and they all say pretty much the same thing, you can be pretty sure that's what the Greek or the Hebrew says. And if you do this word study uh, as, as an amateur and come up with some other meaning other than what these four English translations, you're on very thin ice. You figure each transla translation employs maybe 50 to 75 of the world's best Greek and Hebrew scholars. And if they all agree, it should say this, and you get four translations that agree, you got 200 people, 200 people that do this for a living, and then you're gonna disagree with them, be very careful about doing that. But my, uh, Dr. Goodrick used to say, he says, when he first started taking Greek at Dallas Seminary a long time ago, he asked the Greek professor, how long will it be before I'm really proficient in the Greek language. And he said, 
the, the professor told him, well, at least five years of intense study. And then Dr. Goodrick would say, but he was young and he was inexperienced. And I forgive him for that mistake. He said, I've been doing it for 20 years and I still don't really have a grasp of this language. So anyway, in fact, he used to say, if any preacher ever says, in the Greek it says, or in the Hebrew it says, just reach up and turn your hearing aid down. Because they probably don't know what they're talking about. So here's, here's the Greek word, okay, for, for uh, judge. You can see that it means every, everything from pronouncing a sentence on somebody convicted of a crime to simply weighing choices and deciding which is right, vanilla or strawberry ice cream, judge. So we have to look beyond the word to the context, and the context is always far more important than the word itself anywhere in the Bible. As it turns out, in the context, Jesus makes it very clear what he means by do not judge. He means, he means don't set yourself up as a judge. That's what he means. That's what he said. But that is not what many Bible teachers, especially conservative evangelicals, want to hear. So they, they go to contortions to unsay what Jesus clearly said. Do not judge. Oh, but he couldn't have mean do not judge. Yes, he does. He said, do not judge. Now, he gave the command in the middle of what we call the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, in, in the few minutes before he gave that command in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus was condemning these, uh, the, the empty rulemaking promoted by the scribes and the Pharisees, the religious leaders of Jesus' day. They, they were totally obsessed with rules. Jesus said to the crowd gathered on the mountain, For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. So the religious leaders were promoting their rules as a way to get in favor with God. Jesus said their rules are worthless, totally worthless. And in many cases, the rules actually push people farther away from God. So then after attacking these really rigid legalistic rules, Jesus went after what, what they called acts of righteousness. Now the Pharisees knew how to make a big show. They dressed in you know, these long garments with tassels on the bottom, big long tassels. And, and when they'd get ready to, uh, to give, to take money to the temple, to, they would give both to the temple treasury and then they'd give to this other receptacle it was called alms, alms for the poor. And, but they would actually organize a parade, get a parade of people, have trumpet players, have, have people you know, make a big show of the fact that this guy is going to the, to the, to the uh, temple or to the synagogue and is going to be giving. So they prayed down the street, getting all this attention. Then they pray long, flowery prayers in public, on street corners, in, in the services. Make sure everybody hears how articulate I am, how, how big my vocabulary is, how, how well I can pray. So Jesus said in chapter 6, verse 1, Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. Verse 3 says, when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. 
Now, like many statements on the Sermon on the Mount, that was hyperbole. That's, that's exaggeration. It's intentional exaggeration to make a point. It is not possible for your right hand to do something without your left hand knowing. Verse 6, and when you pray, go into your room, close the door, pray to your father who is unseen. Then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. So just the opposite of what the scribes and Pharisees were prone to do. And then is when Jesus addresses what the Pharisees are best at, and that's judging people, judging other people. Judging anybody who didn't keep the rules the way they, they thought they should keep them. Looking down their noses on anyone who didn't pray like them or anyone who couldn't afford to, to give like them or who didn't practice fasting like they did. But they're not the only ones that were listening to Jesus. Now picture that the religious leaders were always at the fringe of the crowd. They're always on the very back. Everywhere Jesus was talking, they kind of tracked him. They, put, they were spies to make sure that he wasn't offending them or, or uh, criticizing them, which, of course, he did a lot. But then between the religious leaders and Jesus, you've got a crowd, a big crowd of people on the Sermon on the Mount. And then always right up front, you had his disciples who were, who were uh, real close to, to Jesus. But Jesus is talking to everybody, all three groups, in verse 1 of chapter 7, when he says, Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Do not judge is a categorical statement. There's no wiggle room in it. So, what is it Jesus is prohibiting... And is there anything about judging that he would permit? What he prohibits is judgmentalism. There's no Greek word for that. Judgmentalism is a good English word. It's a very descriptive English word. We know what it means. Judgmentalism scrutinizes and accuses and tries and convicts and sentences anybody without even glancing back at myself. That was the Pharisees. And let's be honest. That is also how Christians are known in our society. It's also how Christians are known inside many churches. Judgmentalism. Judgmentalism. Always bad. Jesus prohibits judgmentalism because all it does is hurt people. That's all it does. It never produces righteousness. It never pulls anybody in close. And some of you, I guarantee, are carrying hurts in your heart from judgmentalism. May have happened inside a church. Sadly, it happens often inside a church. Somebody believed they were doing the right thing by calling you out. Just like the Pharisees believed they were doing the right thing by calling people out. Condemning anybody that didn't live exactly as they did. Judgmental people often believe they're doing the right thing. 
They may even wrap their judgmentalism in a scripture verse or two to make it more palatable. Lipstick on a pig. That's what that is. Jesus condemned it in the Pharisees, and he condemned it among his followers, his disciples, and he condemned it for the crowd. In a letter to Christians at Rome, the Apostle Paul equated judgmentalism with despising someone. Romans chapter 14, verse 10. You then, why do you judge your brother or sister? Or why do you treat them with contempt? Parallel statements there or questions. For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. It is not our job to accuse and condemn and sentence people who don't agree with us. Honestly, it seems like many Christians are more concerned about getting people punished than getting them in the kingdom of God. God has never delegated the, the job of deciding who deserves grace, who deserves salvation, who deserves forgiveness. We all know John 3.16. You know John 3.17? God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. So if God doesn't condemn the world, but wants to save the world, why do Christians often want to condemn the world. Now, of all people, Jesus had every right and every reason to condemn sinful people. Look at how he was mistreated, but, but he didn't. In fact, Jesus allowed those sinful people to condemn him, to abuse him, to put him on a cross. Totally unfair. He took on himself the punishment that the people who killed him deserved. Jesus prohibited judgmentalism, and then he added a warning. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Now, this is a, this is a neon sign blinking at us. Judge at your own risk. You want to judge? Be careful. Now, the statement can be interpreted in a couple different ways. Jesus may have been saying that the way you judge will be the way others judge you. That, that definitely happens, doesn't it? People react to what they see in you, and they're going to treat you the, the same way. It's an eye for an eye. I mean, if you're critical of me, I'm going to be critical of you. If you reject me, I'm going to reject you. What goes around comes around most of the time. The other way this could be understood is the way you judge others will be the way God judges you. And I actually think this is what Jesus has in mind. Harsh judgmentalism it reveals a selfish, self-righteous heart. And that is something that God always condemns, both in, in this life and it's also something he will condemn in the end times judgment. You would think that that, that, uh, that would stop anybody from being judgmental, wouldn't you? But it doesn't. In verse 3, Jesus told a story to show how judgmentalism works. Matthew 7, 3. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye, 
and pay no attention to the plank. Now, some versions say a log. I remember one version long ago, that might have been Living Letters or the Cotton Patch version or something, but it said a telephone pole, okay? <laughs> a little loose translation there, probably, telephone in Greek. Um, why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Now I want you to notice two things. First of all, notice that this is a follower of Christ, judging another follower of Christ. He's looking at his disciples, I think, now. He's looking at the, the ones that know the best. He says, the speck is in your brother's eye. Not some stranger. Not somebody you don't know. This is your brother's eye. Not an enemy. Not an adversary. Not somebody who's antagonistic toward God. This is between believers. Number two, the biggest problem is not the speck, but the plank or the board. And this is where many commentaries and, and, and many, I mean, I read so many blogs, this, where they, this is where they veer off. They say, yep, we told you. He's not saying do not judge because you can't take that literally because Jesus is telling you to remove the speck from your brother's eye. See, they say the fact that the brother has a speck proves that Jesus does want us to judge. No, no. Jesus prohibits focusing on minor sins and flaws while overlooking your own sins, which are much, much worse. A speck of sawdust in the eye is not nearly as dangerous as a plank. Instead of dealing with the, with the plank, with the log in their own eye, many Christians become professional speck finders. You know some, don't you? There was a guy once that wanted to meet with me because he said he was misunderstood wherever he went. And uh, came to my office, he said, he said, I don't know why it is, but every time I join a church, I see all the things wrong. And when I tell the pastor or the elders or other people all the things that are wrong with the church, I'm just not appreciated. Nobody wanted to hear his complaints. He had this big old plank called arrogance sticking out of his eye, and I pointed it out to him, and he didn't appreciate it. <laughs> In Cornerstone's early years, a man, uh, there was a man who came with his wife, and he'd been to a denominational seminary. He had a, a, a pretty good seminary degree. He attended church, and he was no longer in ministry. And, and during my sermons, he'd always sit right where Steve Tucker is, right there. He'd always sit there, and, and uh, he would fill in all the white spaces in his bulletin with criticisms of the message. That I could see him writing every time I was preaching, all, all the things that I was saying wrong. And then every two or three months, uh, he'd ask to have coffee, and we'd go have coffee, and, and he would bring his stack of bulletins, and then he'd go through and tell me what I said wrong, in every message. I always listened. He was a nice guy. Uh, I always thanked him because actually there were some things that were helpful, some good valid criticisms. But I also told him, listen, we're never going to agree 100% because you went to a, 
a denominational seminary that just has a different bent, theological bent, than I have. And so we're never going to come together, but that's okay. Well, apparently it wasn't okay with him. Uh, they left the church, and his wife actually came back uh, to tell me that they left Cornerstone because her husband hated me. Really, I said? He hates me? I really like him. Uh, how, how could he hate me? Why does he hate me? And this was her answer. She said, because you would not admit that you were always wrong and he was always right. And then she added, it's very sad, she said, it happens in every church we go to. He always had to be right on everything. If you think what you believe about the Bible, about Christianity, if you think you are 100% right, your doctrinal statement or your, or your standards or the rules that you have for your family, if you think you are 100% correct and biblical, you got a plank in your eye. Nobody is that smart. Nobody is that spiritual. Nobody is right all the time. And I always say, here's my doctrinal statement. I'm sure I'm wrong somewhere. If I knew where I was wrong, I would tell you right now I would change, but otherwise I'll apologize when we get to heaven. <laughs> Jesus said, instead of being judgmental, judge yourself first. Admit and fix your own issues. And once, this is really important, once you've humbly confessed your shortcomings, chances are you're not going to have anything else to say. But you may, God may give you the privilege of kindly and gently and helpfully removing a speck from the eye of another brother or sisters. See, when it's done right, Taking specks out of somebody else's eye, it's not judgmental at all. It's the kind thing to do. You know how hard it is sometimes to get that little, to see that little piece of sawdust in your own eye? There's nothing like being able to go like that and say, would you give me a hand? Sawdust doesn't belong in the eye. It hurts. It, it can be dangerous. To leave it in somebody else's eye would not be Christ-like at all. So this is the kind of judgment that is permitted. Only I don't use the word judgment because th that word so quickly morphs into judgmentalism. What Jesus permits, in fact what he encourages, is for his followers to use great discernment. Discernment. Discernment is recognizing and clinging to what is good. It, it's helping others up. It's, it's rejecting evil and warning others about it when, you have, when it's appropriate, but it avoids irredeemably hopeless situations. You just don't go there. Don't even try. In fact, Jesus describes one of them in verse 6. Look at, look at verse 6. He says, Do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them underfoot and may turn and tear you to pieces. Life requires us to do assessments hundreds of times every day. You get in your vehicle to drive somewhere, you're making assessments all the time, hundreds of times. We're constantly assessing risk level. 
uh, and, and, and cost and time and appropriateness of speech or, or behavior. Godly discernment helps you make clear decisions and avoid harmful situations. And you know that in the middle, ancient Middle East, dogs were wild scavengers. There were no tosties. They were not pets. Uh, pigs were particularly unclean beasts, especially in Jewish culture. So Jesus is telling his followers not to waste time. Don't waste your energy trying to satisfy or to change people who are persistently vicious or, or unhealthy or dangerous. Use your head. Use discernment. To put somebody in the category of pig or dog is a serious thing. But you know what? There are some pig people. There are some dog people. Don't waste your time and energy on them. Jesus says that. Now, many of you are going to head out camping in the next several weeks. It would be a nice weekend to be out there right now, actually. Uh, when you're in the wilderness, it's a lot of fun to, to feed the wild animals, to feed the squirrels, feed the chipmunks, uh, the gray jays, maybe even the foxes if you're careful. But it is never wise to feed the bears. Don't feed the bears. Now, bears can be fun to watch, but like this bear who came to Vicky's Villa at 1 o'clock in the morning last June, bears don't necessarily have your best interest in mind. I don't think this bear had my best interest in mind. Don't feed the bears, because you never know when the bear might decide to take more than whatever it is that you're offering. And by the way, I just got an email this morning. My buddy... Went and checked on Vicky's villa yesterday, and I asked him, I said, any bears? And he sent me a picture of this monster bear that's right out in front of the cabin. He said he couldn't tell if it was a grizzly or a black bear, but Brian and Russell and I are going there in 27 days, and I hope we, I hope we meet him. <laughs> Jesus tells his disciples to use your heads. Don't keep offering God's pearls to dangerous, unappreciative, cynical people. Just discern. Takes discernment to know when it's time. He actually told his disciples, there is a time, if you're preaching in this town and they don't like you, they're not responding, shake the dust off your feet. Sounds pretty cold and heartless, doesn't it? No, it sounds wise. Don't waste your time. This kind of discernment, I think, is what Paul had in mind when he wrote in 1 Corinthians 5, you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, but is sexually immoral or greedy or an idolater, or a slander, or a drunkard, or a swindler. Do not even eat with such people. Don't, don't waste your time. It's not worth it. Don't feed the bears. What business is, is, is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? And I'm not going to go into that word judge. We'll just leave it. You can discern what's right and wrong without being judgmental. You know, you can do that. It's possible to do that. Be wise. Don't feed the bears. And if you need an overall rule, Jesus gives one just a few verses later. Here's Matthew chapter 7, verse 12. So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. The Pharisees summed up the law and the prophets with a bunch of rules and with judgmentalism. Not good. And if you tend that way, 
If you were trained that way in the church that you grew up in, let me offer four suggestions for, for changing as we close the message today. Number one, remind yourself regularly of the grace God has shown to you. Having received far more grace than you deserve, extend a little bit to other people. Look what the Lord is putting up with with you. When Christians are judgmental, they, they send a, a really conflicted message. Uh, God loves you, but I don't. Really? Judgmentalism uh, is, is distorted. It's, it's destructive. It's distorted because we can't see what, what God sees. And judgment belongs to him. It's destructive because it, it never helps the target person. And by the way... Be very, very slow to judge when the evidence is hearsay or when it's ambiguous. I tell you, with the internet and with smartphones, scary time. All it takes is a shred of gossip to totally ruin someone's life. Totally ruin. With social media, it is not innocent until proven guilty. It's scary. We've all seen it, many examples. Scary how quickly a rumor can take someone down, destroy their life. Number two, if you're tempted to judge, start with yourself. That likely will keep you busy for quite some time. (laughs) Instead of looking for faults in other people, ask the Lord, what are my faults? And then get ready, because he probably will answer that prayer. Pastor Tim Keller said, we Christians set standards that we use to judge, not realizing that we will fail our own criteria. Before we utter a word, before we form an opinion, we'd be really wise to do some deep introspection, to look inside first. Number three, your primary job as a follower of Christ is not to judge people, but to love them. You know, it's, it's fascinating how easy it is to be more sensitive to sin in other people's lives than you are in your own. Also quite hypocritical. Much safer if you just leave judging to the only one who can do it absolutely fairly. God is the judge. The Holy Spirit is the one who convicts people of sin. And it it doesn't help the Holy Spirit when we try to impose our standards, our rules, on people with whom we have no relationship. We can sometimes force them to comply, but only the Holy Spirit can bring about true conviction. Our main job is not trying to figure out what other people deserve, but loving them. Loving them into Christ's kingdom. Our job is to find lost sheep not beat up lost sheep. Our job is to lift up people who have fallen, give hope to broken people, and to make the gospel look as attractive as it really is. The gospel is very, very attractive. At the beginning of his mission, Jesus summed it up this way. Luke chapter 4, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom For the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, and to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. The gospel is a very, very positive message, and we do it a great disservice 
when we make it about judgment and condemnation. The only people Jesus really came down hard on were the hypocrites. Religious leaders who were faking it. Jesus majored on love, always. I'll never forget a Bible study in our living room years ago. Or included our neighbor, and uh, he was living with his girlfriend. And we, had, we were studying in the Gospel of Matthew, and our neighbor... And that evening, our neighbor stayed afterwards after everybody else had left. And, and as soon as were, the last person went out the door, he, he said, I got a question. You mean to tell me that living with my girlfriend is sin? I, I never heard that before. I never knew that before. If, he, if we had started with judgmentalism, one, he would never have been at the study. But two, we would have taken away that opportunity for the Holy Spirit to use the Word of God to speak to his heart. You don't have to force that. You can trust the Holy Spirit to do that in the lives of other people just as the Holy Spirit does it in your life. Last point. Number four, if you have suffered from judgmentalism, wait for the fair and righteous judge to even the score. If you've suffered condemnation, accusations, or injustice. Honestly, you, you long for the judge who will set things right again. Give those people what they deserve. Again and again in the Bible, God urges his people to take a long view of justice. You've probably heard the story of the old farmer who wanted nothing to do with God, would never go to church, didn't believe in God, he plowed his field, he was plowing his field one Sunday morning, and the other farmers were walking by, going to the church, and, and uh, he mocked them as, they, you know, you guys are wasting your time. October came, and, and the, the Sunday working farmer had the best crop, the best crop in the county, and he couldn't help but brag about it. You know, they're at the feed store where everybody's around the pot-bellied stove, and he's bragging about the fact that faith in God doesn't mean much if, if somebody like me can succeed. How many bushels did you guys get? To which one old farmer replied, God doesn't settle all his accounts in October. Good word. Memorize and recite often Psalm 27, 14. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart. Wait for the Lord. Let's bow our heads together. Waiting is not easy for any of us. And we all have this idea in our heads that the score needs to get even, certainly in our lifetimes. God doesn't see it that way at all. It is not our job to bring judgment on people that scorn God or people that disagree with us. It's our job to be Jesus' heart to them. Lord, I pray that uh, as we go on, you would, you would apply these words to each of us. And, and, and whenever any of us are, are tempted to say, yeah, but, bring us back to the first three words of Matthew 7, 1, do not judge. Thank you that you are the righteous judge. 
You do all things well, you do all things right, you do all things in your time. It's a big relief. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.